We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for, for joining right on time. I know we're living in back-to-back Zoom meeting world here, a lot of us. And so my name is Daniel Hebert, Vice President of Product and Impact with FEV Tutor. Uh, joining us today is a tutoring guru and expert, uh, Dr. Aaron Devers, uh, who we'll introduce uh, in greater detail in just a moment. Um, today, we're going to explore uh, a nationwide high-impact tutoring initiative. Um, and we're actually sitting on a little bit of a gold mine here because through collaboration between tutoring providers, research organizations, and benchmark assessment companies, um, we have a massive data set uh, that is providing us with a lot of really interesting insights and trends as it relates to high-impact tutoring as a way to unlock student growth and as a way to eliminate uh, systemic inequities in K-12 education. Uh, today's event is, is actually sponsored by FEV Tutor. Um, FEV Tutor is the pioneer in direct-to-school district online tutoring. Uh, FEV Tutor has been doing high-impact tutoring sort of before it was a thing, uh, dating back to 2009. So for over 14 years now, FEV Tutor has been partnering with K-12 school districts to deliver data-driven high-impact tutoring instruction as a way to accelerate learning outcomes with priority student groups. Uh, FEV Tutor takes an integrated approach to aligning its tutoring instruction closely with the core learning environment so it can be a direct extension of classroom teachers and is really focused on driving student outcomes. It's an ESSA evidence-based intervention uh, with a research-based design certification from Digital Promise um, and is partnered with hundreds of school districts across the country. And actually, a lot of the data that we're going to be looking at and analyzing today as a group um, is a product of uh, some partnered programs between FEV Tutor and some of its K-12 school district partners. Um, we'll touch on FEV Tutor as a sponsor later in the presentation if you're interested in learning about uh, FEV as an organization. Uh, but for now, we'll go ahead and jump into uh, what we've all been meeting, waiting for, which is to meet our star of the show today, uh, Dr. Aaron Devers. Uh, Aaron and I have been working together, I think we checked, it's uh, since 2019. Um, and Aaron, in addition to being a, a tutoring guru and a research expert, also has an amazing, uh, beautiful family as well. Uh, we both have daughters named Rosie. And so every time we meet, Aaron and I are able to do a, a little bit of a Rosie check-in to see how each other's uh, Rosie daughters are doing. So Aaron, what's up with, uh, what's up with your Rosie these days? Well, my Rosie is six, and she has now figured out how to buy things on her own. So we handed her a credit card and let her go into a bakery. So we watched her from outside. She went right in. She put her card down on the on the table, and she said, I'd like a brownie, please, <laughs> and then just slid the card across, <laughs> just like a pro. So she's growing up fast. She knows how, how to, to buy things by herself right about now. Oh my gosh, with a credit card too, that could be frightening. Yeah. My my Rosie is three, just turned three. So thankfully is not buying things with a credit card herself just yet. Um, both of her parents work in education, myself and my wife, Sarah. And so, um, yeah, we're trying to expose her to a lot of books, of course, it goes without saying. But recently her uh, grandmother brought over, I actually have it as an, as an object here, as a 
she brought over a speaker with these little action figures that go on top of it. This is an Elsa action figure. And so while there wasn't a whole bunch of Disney movies or Frozen in our household until recently, it's uh, basically taken over over the last month or so. So if you want to learn how to build a snowman or uh, let it go or any of those songs, that, that's that's Rosie's world these days. Um, so now, now that we did the Rosie check-in, uh, Aaron, you want to tell us who you are as a, as a professional? Sure. Yes. So uh, I'm a psychology professor and I got my degree from Indiana University uh, in psychology in 2007. And I teach classes that students really enjoy. Uh, so things like uh, research methods, statistics, introductory psychology, and social psychology. So that's my primary position. Uh, additionally, I'm a founder of a group called Join Adventures, and we do consulting for groups like FEV Tutor and a few other uh, ed tech companies where we look at the data and we're just trying to help design experiments and uh, look at the, the results of those experiments to see how we can maximize um, learning for kids. And so, uh, it's a really rewarding uh, part of what I get to do as as uh, something that fills some of my free time. So uh, I'm really uh, blessed to get to do that. And um, and so this is a collaboration. I'm not the only member of Joint Adventures, but it's a collaboration. And so what you're seeing is uh, the results of a collaboration uh, across many years. Uh, this data comes from last year's. Uh, well, and not, and we'll talk more about the data later. But uh, but I've I've. Uh, I'm someone who loves talking about math, and so between uh, Dan's uh, dad jokes and my math jokes, we're going to hopefully have a lot of fun today. <laughs> That's awesome. And Aaron, thank you. I mean, uh, all of the data analysis and experiments that you've run with us at FEV Tutor have been really influential in terms of shaping our partnerships and programs. So thank you. Thank you. Um, and I'm excited to jump into the data as well. Um, I'll do a quick intro of myself. Um, I'm an educator by trade, um, so I started my career off in the classroom uh, teaching middle school math uh, in some critical needs school districts uh, down in rural Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta. Um, I saw some progress in a classroom environment and really wanted to take that work to scale um, to transform K-12 education at a national level. Um, and so I joined up with the KIPP Charter School Network. Shout out to KIPP, doing amazing work out there. Um, and uh, was was really fortunate to be able to work as part of a replicable school model, um, continuing to take that work to scale. Um, and then in 2013, so exactly 10 years ago, <clears throat> I met the founders of FEV Tutor, and I've been uh, in the high-impact tutoring world ever since then, um, so for the past 10 years, and really fortunate to, to be able to work closely with Aaron for, for many of those years as well. All right. Um, so for our agenda today, we're going to get rocking and rolling. Um, we're going to start off as a backdrop for this conversation, talking about um, sort of the history of educational inequity in K-12 education. Um, this is not a new phenomenon. Um, it's been exacerbated through COVID um, and the, the gaps are widening. Um, it's, a, it's a call for, for urgency and for action. Um, but we do want to take sort of a macro level look at some of the uh, underlying data as it relates to systemic inequities in K-12 education. Um, and then we're going to dive into high impact tutoring. I know the poll question at the beginning, folks are super interested in best practices for high impact tutoring. And so that'll be a big portion of, of that, you know, section of the presentation today. And then we're sitting on a goldmine of data, that nationwide initiative from uh, last school year, AY 22-23, 
that includes tutoring data, benchmark data, um, interactions between students and tutors, all of this, uh, we're going to be looking at some of Aaron's analysis and some key takeaways uh, from the 2022-23 data set um, as a way to inform high impact tutoring direction into the future, as well as uh, some research initiatives moving forward uh, for us as well. And then we're going to make time for Q&A at the end. So again, please do post any questions that pop up um, into the chat and or into the questions section as we go. All right. Uh, Susan Archer asks, uh, what, what district in the Mississippi Delta? I was in Panola County, so North Panola School District uh, down in Mississippi. Basically just trying to prove that I'm keeping my eyes on the chat here. So thank you, Susan. All right. Um, we're going to do a quick poll question. I'll grab that. And before we jump into um, talking about the equity and achievement gap in K-12 education, we first want to know for your districts or for your school, um, depending on if uh, you're a teacher or school administrator, district administrator, state level or policy level, um, to what degree are equity and achievement gaps a concern for, for you? And I'm seeing a lot of serious concern pop up. Uh, no surprises there, about 68% at the moment, um, and uh, sort of head, headed down in terms of moderate, minor, not concerned from there. Um, and Aaron, I don't know about you, but not surprising in terms of these poll responses. I was looking at some survey data across a few different survey samples recently, and it seems to be that equity and achievement gaps are always at the top of the list, if not in the top three, along with mental health, uh, along with teacher shortages. Um, any initial reactions as you're seeing this data come in, Aaron? Yeah, this is not surprising. I would be surprised. I would have been surprised if anyone um, did not see this as a concern as we're looking across the country at at uh, coming out of COVID and just looking generally at what's going on. Absolutely. And I'm going to close this out and then we're going to jump into um, Aaron. Could you walk us through a little bit of a backdrop of educational inequity as it relates to K-12 education in the United States? Yes. Yeah. So as we're thinking about achievement gaps, I think uh, most of us are not surprised that this exists. And this has been something that's been studied in education uh, for decades. So as we look at the traditional drivers of inequity, we're looking at differences in access, differences in resources, and differences in quality. So uh, for low-income areas, they're having uh, fewer, there are fewer interventions designed to try and improve the achievement gap, uh, may have less reliable internet, which turned out to be very important uh, when uh, schools closed. When we're looking at resources, uh, it's uh, the Economic Policy Institute reports that medium and high poverty districts spend $3,000 less per student than what would be required for an adequate education. In terms of quality, we're looking at a difference in the experience of teachers, the classroom size, the materials. So as we look at these potential um, contributors to inequity, uh, it can get uh, a bit overwhelming as we think about both the cost and the, and the time uh, that may be required to try and close those gaps. So these gaps have been, are, there's nothing new about these gaps. Um, but as we as we are starting to see the data come out of COVID, uh, what we're seeing is uh, there was a lot of learning loss, um, and that learning loss, um, as reported by the National Assessment of Educational Progress, uh, they 
found that scores decreased by five and eight points from 2019 to 2022. Preceding those dates, uh, you had seen kind of a steady, uh, a small but steady increase in those scores. And then around 2019, we see them start to decline. Um, in 2022, uh, students were an average of 15 to 24 weeks behind in math and nine weeks behind in reading. So we're looking, we can measure these in scores, but also in time, in um, instruction time. And on average, the reading scores for fourth and eighth graders fell three points from 2019 to 2022. So by every metric, um, uh, we're seeing uh, declines that happened between 2019 and 2022. As we think about those declines, um, so we're starting by looking at the achievement gap, then we're looking at a, a kind of a universal decline or national decline. Um, but then the, that decline for the students at the lower end of the achievement gap uh, was worse. So as you look at uh, the math scores of students who were starting uh, further behind, they experienced a larger uh, loss, larger decline. Um, and so for poorer districts, uh, they fell an average of three quarters of a year uh, behind, a half a year for an average school district, and three-eighths of a year in, in a richer district. So the, the amount of decline, um, the achievement gap essentially just got larger was the outcome of COVID. When students were asked um, students who were higher performers, and this goes back to the idea that this is in part driven by resources, of this, the higher performing students who were at or above the 75th percentile, they had more frequent computer access, they had a quiet place to work, they were also more likely to have a teacher available to help one to two times a week um, than the students that were at the lower end of, of this of this spectrum. And so uh, the it's not a surprise that the achievement gap exists. Um, and then uh, it's also not a surprise that COVID just exacerbated that gap. So it's put districts um, in a position where we want to figure out is uh, what can be done or, or what are some interventions that might help. Yeah, wow, Aaron, this is this helps really clarify, make it make it crystal clear as far as macro level data points go. You, you talked about small and steady increases in the years and, and decades prior to COVID in terms of sort of shrinking equity and achievement gaps. Um, and then how a lot of that was just, you know, sort of wiped out uh, over the course of a year or two. It's, it's really alarming when you, when you look at the data. And my mind also jumps to, you know, sort of the human level of this as well, thinking about the children, thinking about the students, you know, you, you, you look at, gaps in, in math and in ELA and like what does that actually mean for a human being for for a child for a student and it's like um, you know in terms of access to, to college and to, to careers and and you know looking at viewing k-12 education as a way of creative expression and for for students to be able to sort of artistically you know re represent themselves as as people um, and, and even education as, as freedom as well. It's, it's, you know, it's alarming to me. It's, it's certainly a call to action. Um, and we are seeing a, a lot of action uh, being taken, whether it's high impact tutoring or otherwise, which is really, really refreshing. And so the question beckons, uh, Aaron, is, is this a, is this a, a trend uh, that is impossible? Is this a gap that is impossible to, to close or eliminate? Mm -hmm. So the question uh, that has come to many researchers' minds has been, is this an impossible gap? So I'm just going to read this um, from the Harvard Graduate School of Education report. 
Children have resumed learning, but largely at the same pace as before the pandemic. The hardest hit communities where students fell behind by more than 1.5 years in math have to teach 150% of a typical year's worth of material for three years in a row just to catch up. So I want to highlight that time um, and thinking about how much extra would be needed to close the gap. And that's going to feature later when we talk about our data so any district that lost more than a year of learning should be required to revisit their recovery plans and add instructional time, summer school, extended year school, tu tutoring, et cetera, so that students are made whole. So uh, what are we going to do um, as we face the gap is now the question facing many school districts. And before we jump into to solutions, uh, we want to get a, a quick read on uh, one particular solution that's really risen to the surface and probably a big reason why a lot of you are here today, uh, that is tutoring. Uh, so something that's been around for a while, but is starting to appear in, in some different forms. And so before we jump into what is high impact tutoring, what are best practices, what's the research saying about it? Uh, let's just get a, a, an initial gauge of where we're at as a group. Um, how familiar are you with, with high impact tutoring? Some of you may have high impact tutoring initiatives uh, going on in, in your districts. Uh, for, for all intents and purposes, we can say that this is synonymous with, with high dosage tutoring, uh, for those that are familiar with that term. Um, and, and it's interesting here, Aaron, I'm seeing a pretty good spread and, and a decent number, nearly half of, of folks who are not familiar with high impact tutoring at all. It's, it's interesting mm -hmm. to see this data come in. Yeah. Yeah, so... Ideally, we have something to offer uh, for every level of familiarity, but I think it's this is especially impactful for, for people who are not familiar with it. Absolutely. All right, let's close this out and jump into high-impact tutoring as an intervention. Um, so, Aaron, from a research perspe perspective, what, what is high-impact tutoring? Why does it matter? So what we know is that high-impact tutoring has one of the largest effect sizes as an intervention um, to promote learning. So uh, when you're trying to weed through data on any given intervention, what you want to be able to look at is a meta-analysis because what they're doing is they're taking a lot of experimental work and putting it together. So you're not just looking at one study, you're looking at, uh, in this case, I think over 200 studies that they put together. Um, and what they found by looking across all of those studies uh, was that tutoring was able to accelerate learning by three to 15 months. So it's a, it's a it's an add uh, to what's already taking place. And so as an intervention, um, it's uh, it has some of the strongest kind of um, data to back uh, to support it. And so we're going to talk more about each uh, aspect of tutoring and how each of those aspects contributes to its effectiveness. Um, but what one of the, as we as educators have compared different types of interventions against each other, uh, tutoring stands out as an effective form of intervention. In this 2017 study, they found it was the most effective form of intervention for, in particular, for students from low socioeconomic backgrounds. They compared it to uh, cooperative learning, uh, to feedback and progress, uh, progress monitoring, among others. Those were some other effective interventions, but tutoring stood out as the the most effective, uh, most effective intervention. That's promising, and and especially when you see that students from low socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, it's 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 effective there as well, or or can be effective. Um, and then this data taken from the National Student Support 
uh, accelerator out of um, Stanford has shown, um, they looked at over 200 studies to find that high dosage tutoring was one of a few interventions that demonstrated large positive effects on both math and reading. And so this wasn't looking at a, at a special population, but looking um, at the broad landscape of tutoring interventions um, as and is cited as uh, one of the most effective ways to increase achievement for students from lower income families. Um, so when you look at these comparisons uh, to things like a class size reduction or adding curriculum or uh, professional development, uh, technology support, uh, adding, adding a tutoring intervention is uh, a much has a much larger effect on learning. And so it doesn't become a surprise when ESSER funding, COVID relief funding is released and tutoring rises near the top of funded areas. Uh, it's the intervention with the high effect size across math and reading, including low socioeconomic groups. And then if you look at this list of budgeted amounts uh, coming out of ESSER, you know, you have your facilities and your HVAC, and those are obviously going to be uh, large in terms of the, the budgeted amount and costs associated with those. But tutoring's right up at the top outside of, you know, paying teachers and, and staff. Tutoring's right up there. Um, and so, you're seeing as, as the funding, and this is probably the first time we could you know, state this as, as fact, as being true, the, the funding is, is following what the research is saying about something that's been around for a while, uh, traditional tutoring. And so what, what 44% or so of, of folks who responded to that poll said they're not familiar at all with high impact tutoring. I imagine everyone here is familiar with, with tutoring itself. And so what's the difference? Like what, how is high impact tutoring different than, you know, tutoring in a traditional sense. And I think of tutoring in a traditional sense, Aaron, my mind jumps to, you know, coming up in a suburban community where, you know, students who were friends of mine who were, were stuck in math or trying to get their SAT scores up, their, you know, parents would go out and pay for a private tutor and they would get some SAT test prep or some homework help and that sort of thing. What, what is what is high impact tutoring and, and how is it different from tutoring in a traditional sense? So high impact tutoring is uh, has been informed by data. So uh, researchers have looked to see what are the important ingredients that would lead to learning and how and put those together into a tutoring intervention. So this includes um, the elements that we're going to go through in just a second. But I would I would think it's possible that even in a coming up in a suburban outcome, it's possible that that tutoring was a was a high impact, uh, a form of high impact tutoring. It just wasn't identified that way because we had yet to kind of do some of this research to identify these uh, these pillars. So as we look at it, um, a high impact tutoring is a one on one or small group teaching aimed at a specific goal. So uh, some researchers define a small group as up to six, uh, but often you're going to look at a group that's smaller than that as uh, as a as part of high impact tutoring. When we look at having a specified weekly time commitment, usually within the school day, typically that would be two to three times a week. Some researchers might say three to four times a week. And what we know is that um, during the school day, if, if a school district can put the tutoring intervention during the school day, the effect size um, is, is about twice as large. So an effect size for an after-school tutoring program would be something like 0.2, which is still, still good. That's a great effect size. But that doubles to 0.4 when you can put the tutoring session within the school day. Um, so that's the first 
first element. The second one has to do with having a strong relationship between the student and the tutor. I think all of us who are working in the field of education understand that the relationship that exists between a student and the educator really matters. And so uh, creating a strong a strong relationship uh, will make a difference. When a tutor does a good job of giving feedback and that that feedback is well received by the, by the student, the FX size can increase to 0.48, which is a very uh, large effect size. Aligning um, the tutoring with the curriculum is a really important feature. So we know that uh, often a student needs to be exposed to material seven plus or minus two times, so sometime between five and nine repetitions in order to memorize it. Um, so tutoring becomes, uh, when it's aligned with the curriculum, becomes a repetition or an, an a value add to the material that's already part of that student's uh, school day. Progress monitoring uh, is the fourth one. So making sure that your um, the students receiving feedback so that they know where do I go next? Uh, what's the trajectory that I'm on? Um, so that's part of the progress monitoring. But the other part of the um, progress monitoring includes um, standardized measurement. So uh, one of the things that you're going to see as we uh, present the data towards the end of uh, the presentation is that being able to uh, monitor on a standardized measure like an NWEA or a STAR um, allows you to really kind of see where students are relative to others in other um, at their same uh, grade level. The effect sizes are about when you're when you're looking at interventions, you want to see um, that they've used a standardized test as an outcome um, because the effect size on a measure that's designed by an ed, by a company that's producing a product is usually about twice as large as what it would be on a standardized test. And so that standardized test measure is a really great um, way of making sure that you're monitoring uh, a child's uh, uh, growth and skills. And then the last one has to do with the coaching of the tutors. So um, we uh, tutoring works uh, even when you use parents as tutors, uh, it's just a difference of effect size. So with parents as tutors, you can get an effect size of about, about 0.2. When a tutor is a paraprofessional, so uh, they're not a teacher, but they've been trained in tutoring techniques, uh, the effect size goes up to about 0.4, so it's about twice as effective. Uh, when you have a trained teacher, um, that effect size is usually uh, around 0.5. So the the background of the tutor matters. So all of these features taken together are how you get high impact tutoring. So it's it's consistent, um, multiple times a week, strong relationship between that student and tutor. It matches the curriculum of the school district. The student's progress is being monitored um, and the tutor has received some kind of training uh, so that they feel prepared in that tutoring context. So these taken together is what um, constitutes high impact tutoring. I don't know, Dan, is there anything you think you might want to add? Yeah, that alignment with curriculum piece really stands out to me. Like when when I first stepped into the tutoring world in 2013, you know, picture a time when the rise of one-to-one -one technology initiatives was really taking off in school districts with one-to-one -one Chromebooks and iPads and things like that. And there's all these software programs and assessments and curriculum and all of this is is really taking off. And it's like, saw so much at the time of, of things just happening in silos. So teachers are doing one thing in a classroom environment over here, and then there's some supplemental software program that's living over here and assessment data over there. And so at the time, we're like, how can tutoring act as a, a catalyst uh, to bring a lot of these disparate pieces together 
so that it can really function as more of an integrated core learning environment um, where tutoring is, is calling on and leveraging pre-existing data from school districts who are already assessing students quite a bit. You, you mentioned, you know, some seasonal benchmarks. There's all sorts of formative assessment data, unit assessments, state assessments, and so how to put that data to work to drive targeted instruction that's then, you know, inherently tied back to the core learning environment. By doing so, you can, you know, in essence, act as like a force multiplier for for teachers. One of the hardest things for me to do as a first-year teacher down in Mississippi at the time was uh, differentiated instruction. Like I was just, you know, lucky if I could teach effectively to the middle at the time as a first-year teacher, um, <laughs> got through it somehow. But like, if you could have online tutoring serving as an activation point for real-time differentiated instruction that's literally serving as an extension of you as a teacher, and then you're you're cooking with gas. Like that's something really exciting. So the alignment with curriculum stood out to me. Also, there's just a lot of overlap between like the consistency and like the fact that a lot of school districts are now leaning in the direction of building this into school day programming. Because in the face of COVID, we saw a lot of tutoring pop up, uh, a lot of tutoring companies and products, and there's online tutoring, there's there's on-demand tutoring, there's all this, this stuff, all this noise. Um, and one of the interesting data points that I saw recently, Aaron, was that with the on-demand virtual tutoring, you know, the, the tutoring that's available for students around the clock on nights and weekends, and only 19% of students were taking advantage of that. And it was the high-performing students who were twice as likely to be taking advantage of the on-demand tutoring. And so the fact that, you know, you're recommending through the research that it be structured and consistent and happen during the school day, that will help ensure that, you know, low-performing students have that sort of structured learning environment where they can have consistent attendance, they can build that rapport and that relationship with their tutor that, you know, really builds and, and scaffolds over time. So you can, you know, get students to the types of dosages that we're about to see in a little bit here are, are going to really truly drive outcomes and accelerated growth. Why does it work? What about high impact tutoring make, makes it effective? Yeah. So, so the targeted nature, which is kind of a little bit of what you were saying uh, just, a, just a minute ago, that making sure it's matching what's going on in the classroom. So it's personalized, it's on the topic that the student's already uh, discussing and facing. And so it's uh, designed to meet the student where they already are, which is situated in a school, in a district. And um, so, and when it feels like this is designed to meet the student's need, it helps that student feel supported. They start to feel confident. They start to feel engaged. Um, Bob Slavin, who is a a researcher on uh, tutoring who passed away recently, one of the things that he says, um, and this is a quote from him, he said, the additional factor that explains much of the powerful impacts of tutoring, I believe, is love. That most tutors with or without teaching certificates love the children they tutor in a way that the teacher with 25 or 30 students usually cannot. And so that extra piece of feeling um, supported and encouraged is part of what happens uh, in tutoring. So it's not entirely academic, um, but that extra feeling of support and care helps improve, it helps improve academic outcomes. Um, and so, and again, um, what you mentioned just previously having to do with regular attendance, building it into the school day is a way of making it possible for students who may have um, 
unreliable schedules after school or unreliable internet at home or lack of access to technology that would allow them to, to gain access to a tutor are able to attend um, consistently when it's part of that school day. And so as much as schools can help support that, that's going to be most important to um, improving outcome for, uh, for students that may have uh, a lack of access or um, may have less, uh, less resources outside of the school day. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, just keeping an eye on the clock here, Aaron, <laughs> we're going to jump into the, the moment that, that we've all been waiting for here. We're sitting, on this, we're sitting on this gold mine of this massive data set from hot off the press from the 2022-23 academic year. Um, and so we walk us through what the data is, is telling you as a, as a researcher um, as it relates to, to high impact tutoring in action. Um, so tutoring that's actually occurred nationwide recently, just this past academic year. Yes, this is the, to me, this part of the most exciting part of this, uh, this webinar. Um, we're basically asking the two questions that you should be asking anytime you're looking at an intervention. Did it accelerate student growth? And what were the factors that uh, contributed to that growth. So those are our two questions. So as we looked at our data, we were trying to say, does does it improve does it improve outcomes, and then why? Uh, so we looked at over ninety eight thousand students that received tutoring across two hundred and eighty three districts. This is a gigantic data set. So this gives us just a broad. Uh, broad view of what of what uh, what was going on in terms of how did tutoring impact learning. So we were looking at benchmark assessments, including iReady, NWA, and STAR. So these being uh, the most commonly used uh, in the districts we were working in, and then looked at the growth rate. So how much growth occurred for the participants compared to the non-participants? And we tried to include uh, every piece of our sample so that we weren't uh, excluding anyone. Uh, so all of all of the students were included in the in the analysis. So the um, three benchmark assessments, STAR, iReady, and NWEA, are, are probably the biggest three that we see across the country, um, and super important here for this conversation because they serve as an objective measure of of student achievement and and nationally normed data. Um, so let's get a quick sense from the group uh, what benchmark assessment do you use in your school or district currently? It could be one of these three. Um, so our data set is, is gonna be incorporating STAR, iReady, and NWEA for this analysis, or it could be other. Um, and this would be in addition to any sort of state assessment data or other assessment data you have in your district, but we're talking seasonal benchmarks here. So, so benchmarks that are administered, you know, typically fall, winter, and spring uh, to give you know, indicators of, of student growth throughout the course of, of the school year. And not surprising, again, that we're seeing a spread, NWEA, 35%, um, and iReady and STAR not too far behind. All right. So, Aaron, based on that, it looks like we've got some familiarity with these benchmark assessments here, which is great. It's helpful. And so let me close this out and let's see what the data is telling us. Okay, so first, this included every participant. So we did not, uh, there were no qualifiers here. So we looked at both the iReady, the STAR, and the NWA. And when we looked at these numbers, the students that were considered uh, participants, FEV participants, they would have needed to attend only one session. And so in especially if, if you're looking at the iReady sample, 15% of our sample attended only one session 
44% attended five or fewer. So when we're looking at this data, I want you to think this is anyone who even attended one tutoring session is included here. And even given those, what you're seeing is an improvement for the students who receive tutoring. So then the second question, so first we're able to say yes, tutoring, uh, high impact tutoring improved outcomes for students, but what were the factors that matter? So now we're gonna break the sample down and look at uh, attendance, relative grade level and participation as, uh, as the contributing factors to, to the tutoring outcomes. And just to hang on to this for a moment, because uh, I think there's some definitions in here that are um, in, important to clarify on the front end. Uh, for, first of all, what we're looking at is a national data set, 98,000 plus students, uh, like Aaron said, um, all of the, the data is from one specific tutoring provider. Uh, it's, it's all from FEV Tutor. Uh, and then the measures of student achievement are from the, the three benchmarks. Uh, so iReady, STAR, and NWEA analyzed all three of those separately. Um, and so for FEV participants across the board, growth rates are going up. Okay, great. What factors contributed to that attendance? So just simply the number of tutoring sessions attended uh, is what we mean by attendance in this case. Um, relative grade level. And so by relative grade level, we mean... Um, for students that participated in the tutoring, what was their starting point? Uh, so were they on grade level when they began their tutoring experiences? Were they two grade levels behind, three grade levels behind? So analyzing it along those lines. And then lastly, participation within the tutoring sessions themselves. And so if you look inside of uh, an FEV tutor session, you'll see um, students are uh, earning participation points as they engage with their tutors. Uh, using a rubric, uh, tutors are awarding points for engagement in the sessions. And so um, it's it's sort of like in-session engagement level. And, and how does that factor into student growth and, and outcomes on that third point? And so now that I got that out of the way, I just want to make sure everyone's uh, speaking common language. Uh, back over to you, Aaron, on uh, the, the analysis. Yeah. So not surprisingly, the more sessions attended, uh, the better they scored. So as we look at um, the number of sessions, and so this uh, includes STAR, iReady, and NWA. So if you want to look more closely at uh, the measure that your uh, school district uses, uh, broken down by math and ELA, you can see that uh, as students attended more sessions, the better they scored. So um, for each of these, uh, you want to pay close attention to the comparison with none. So for STAR, for math, uh, the nuns on average were at 492 um, and you can compare that to 61 in the 11 to 15 sessions compared and 69 in the 16 to 20 sessions. For iReady, the nuns were at 16.77 um, compared to 19.32 for the students who attended 11 to 15 uh, math tutoring sessions. For the NWEA, uh, the nuns scored uh, at 7.37. And then the students who attended 16 to 20 sessions had an average of 8.53 RIT growth scores uh, or RIT growth point or improvement on the RIT growth score. Or, um, then when you look at the ELA scores for STAR, the nuns were at 50.57 and the students who attended 16 to 20 FEB uh, tutoring sessions were at 91.8. For iReady, the nuns were at 18.73 and uh, students who attended 16 to 20 sessions were at 22.45. For the NWEA, the nuns were at 4.95, and uh, students who attended 16 to 20 sessions were at 7.05. So these uh, 
these improvements basically support what you would what um, what everything we've talked about would suggest, which is students who are receiving high impact tutoring show an improvement in their scores. So this was just looking at how many sessions the students attended. And just to clarify, Erin, this is uh, improvement from fall benchmark to spring benchmark from last school year. So the number of like scale score points that the students went up from from fall to to spring. That's the numbers we're seeing here. Yes. Okay, cool. What about relative grade level? What did you see in there? So this pattern uh, holds across uh, across the, t uh, the test. I here chose to focus just on the iReady math. So what we're seeing is that students who are below grade level were the most likely to benefit from the tutoring. So the difference between a non-tutored student who was also three grade levels below um, in, in math on the iReady was 15.67 compared to the student who received tutoring, which was 17.82. Now, again, these students actually, this uh, to count as an FEV student here, you just needed to attend one session. Um, so that is not breaking it down by just students who attended a large number of sessions. So for students who are below grade level, tutoring was uh, demonstrably more effective. Um, uh, so Target does a great job with those students in particular. That's interesting. So basically the acceleration rate increases for those students who started the tutoring multiple grade levels behind their, their current grade level in terms of academic performance. Mm -hmm. Yes. Interesting. Okay. And then what about participation in the sessions for the students that were had higher engagement rates while meeting with their tutors? What did their growth look like? Yeah. So again, this is this is not surprising, but the students uh, students are awarded participation points within a tutoring session. And the students who earned more participation points in the session uh, were showed more growth on their standardized test than the students who didn't. And so as we look at these, um, you again kind of want to look, compare the nuns, which are the non-FEVs, uh, to the to the students who participated at a at a at a much higher rate. So for star for math, the average was forty nine point two, but for students who earned on average sixteen to twenty participation points per session, their score was seventy one point three eight. For the I ready, uh, sixteen point seven seven for the nuns compared to twenty two point seven one for students who participated who earned an average of sixteen to twenty participation points per session. For the NWA, the nuns were at seven point three seven, but for students who participated um, who had an average participation point of sixteen to twenty, uh, their score was ten point eight five. And so that pattern persists across uh, with ELA as well. So what we're seeing is. Um, students attending the session matters, um, but when they're actively engaged, that growth gets accelerated. So what we did in order to kind of simplify and look across all, all, all of the different um, standardized tests uh, and look at the patterns, what emerged was an idea that the students that are, that are really doing the best have that combination. So uh, we have a label called FEV champions, and these are students who attended 21 or more sessions, and they averaged 11 or more participation points per session. So these were chosen in part because of um, what we looked at, the scores, the scores themselves being higher in those categories, but also thinking about what might be an achievable benchmark for a student to hit. Not wanting to set the bar too high, but also not too low, to find a sweet spot where we can put students in the best possible place to achieve the best outcomes. And so this is where those numbers uh, come from. So attendance of 21 or more sessions with an average uh, participation point of 11 or more points.
And I was just monitoring the chat here. I saw some really good questions. Uh, people like Roger Ryan asking, you know, how many students fell in, in each of these subgroups? And uh, Roger, I think we can link out to the annual report, the detailed version of this to give you a, a really good view at, at all of all of those specifics at a granular level. Um, and, and your question is, is a good one because it, it points to sort of the fact that there was a spread last school year in this data set of students who are participating in all these different number of sessions and all these different engagement levels. And so what we're now doing is packaging up Aaron's findings and acting in a consultative manner when communicating with K-12 school districts who are launching high impact tutoring programs to say, hey, let's will this into existence on scale through some really targeted goal setting where now we're saying, all right, every student is going to become an FEV champion who participates in high impact tutoring. They're going to do 21 or more sessions. They're going to do 11 or more participation points per session. We're going to report back on progress against these targets as we go throughout the course of the school year so that we can maximize the number of students who become FEV champions and, and thus you know, demonstrate accelerated growth on, on a much larger scale moving forward. Um, and so it's like synthesizing and packaging up Aaron's, you know, super detailed analysis in order to make some real clear, concise recommendations moving forward for, for how to maximize program effectiveness for, for tutoring partnerships. So when we look just at the, at, at the champions and look at their growth compared to the others, what we see is that uh, while there was an improvement for students who received tutoring at any level, uh, there was a lot of improvement for the students who achieved champion level. And that pattern holds across iReady, across STAR, uh, and across NWEA. So those differences uh, just become more pronounced as we see students who are not just attending one session, but attended 21 or more sessions. Students who didn't just turn their uh, attend the tutoring session, but actively participated in that session. So um, so then when we break this down, not just in terms of numbers, but translate it, that into grade level, the champions improved uh, 1.46 grade levels from fall to spring, which was a 0.59 grade level equivalent improvement over non-participants. So if you think back to the quote that I uh, was listed on the slide at the beginning that said that in order to recover from uh, the, the learning loss that was happening over COVID for students at uh for students where there had already been an achievement gap, they would need to uh, achieve this 1.46 grade level equivalent every year for three years. So in essence, what FEV was able to do was to match that recommendation. So what was predicted to say, could we do this for three years in a row to get back on track? Um, FEV's uh, data suggests that that is possible for the FEV champions um, to improve at a 0.59 grade level per year uh, over three years to, to recover that loss. We're on to something. We got a pathway. <laughs> Eliminate that. Achieve, right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, yeah. That's what we're and trying to do. And so best practices coming out of this, and I know we're coming up on time. We've got about seven minutes left in the hour. And so uh, what are you seeing? Uh, just break it down into the, the the most straightforward. And for our podcast listeners who can't see the screen, uh, what are our, what are our main best practice takeaways here? I think uh, finding ways to 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 institute a high impact tutoring program in your district, target the students that are most in need of it. Uh, make sure that you're following um, the best practices for high impact tutoring, putting it during the school day, making sure it's aligning with the curriculum, making sure that you can have a student tutor match. 
um, and really support consistent attendance and active student participation. So those two pieces together, that consistency of attendance and the active engagement of the student is what's, uh, what's working to uh, improve outcomes. Awesome. And there's a lot of really amazing questions firing through the chat, and I see them uh, through the question box as well. Um, and so we will get to those. I also want to be aware of time. So I'm going to skip skip over ongoing research um, and jump right to uh, a lot of the questions are pertaining to capacity. And so I'm literally seeing people type in saying, like, I'm looking for tutors right now. Like, all of this sounds great, but like, who? where can we get tutors? And so uh, one of the reasons that we're, you know, sort of putting two and two together here with the benchmark assessment data and then FEV Tutor, who's our sponsor for this event, um, FEV Tutor has been delivering high impact tutoring on scale since 2009. Um, I've been with the organization since 2013. And I understand, you know, in the face of teacher shortages and all of this, there's there's challenge in, in terms of finding people to deliver the, the tutoring. Aaron made an interesting point earlier that it actually matters less who the tutor is, whether it's a parent, a, a certified teacher, a paraprofessional. The data is showing that, you know, it's more important that the, the tutor is, is trained and that the program is, is implemented with these characteristics of effective high impact tutoring um, and that there's training and coaching and monitoring in place for the for the tutors. Um, and so FEV Tutor, one of our superpowers is that we do have the capacity uh, to deliver high impact tutoring on scale. Uh, you saw some data here that represents tutoring for 98,000 students across the country last school year. Uh, but we work in districts, you know, such as Baltimore City Schools, Jefferson County Public Schools, where we're, we're literally, you know, tutoring tens of thousands of students on a daily basis um, with, you know, one-to-one -one and, and small group tutoring instruction. And so if you're interested more on the capacity front and how to partner with an organization, to deliver high impact tutoring, I definitely recommend um, setting up a time to request a demo with FEV Tutor. Uh, this is actually gonna be part one of a two-part webinar series as well. Um, we are gonna be grounding the high impact tutoring discussion in a real life district scenario. Um, so on November 16th, we're gonna be co-presenting uh, with the assistant superintendent of instruction in Hector County ISD, who's been delivering high impact tutoring uh, they use NWEA map growth as their benchmark assessment. They also have a really interesting outcomes-based contract with FEV Tutor that they use to sort of uh, introduce a high amount of accountability to their, their partnership, um, where you know academic outcomes are, are literally tied in as incentives and bonuses in the contract with, with the partner. Um, and so we're going to be presenting with Hector County ISD through another one of these EdWeb sessions on November 16th, where you can hear directly from folks who are, are spearheading high-impact tutoring uh, programs in action in uh, in Texas. So this district is over in the Midland, Odessa area in West Texas and um, has been has been doing this for a few years now and has a, a lot of really good lessons to, to share. Um, so I wanted to make sure I got that out, um, both the November 16th opportunity to learn more directly from Ector County ISD, as well as um, this link, if you would like to request a demo from FEV Tutor, I'm sure we'll get this dropped in the chat as well. Uh, please feel free to click on that link to, to get a time to, to check out that platform and that program a little bit more closely. Um, Aaron, I'm cool with hanging on for a minute or two after time. There's been a zillion questions popping through. Um, and so why don't we try to pick some of those off? And for those of you that do need to jump, 
um, either now or at the hour. Like, thank you again for for participating today. No, this was a lot of information all at once. So appreciate you bearing with us. Um, and we'll be sending out some follow-up communication as well uh, with links to, to deeper dive into Aaron's research and some case studies and things like that. All right. Um, questions. I'll do my best here, Aaron. What about on-demand? What about on-demand tutoring? Uh, is it effective? So in general, as we kind of mentioned before, that the on-demand tutoring tends to be used by students who are above grade level or at grade level. So if we're trying to close the achievement gap, on-demand tutoring is not a useful intervention for that purpose. So making sure that tutoring is consistent and made available during the school days is, is a much better strategy for trying to close the achievement gap than on-demand tutoring would be. Excellent. Um, what is the best length of time per session, uh, whether it be 30 minutes, 45 minutes, uh, and how many times a week, et cetera, et cetera. Like what, what sort of dosages, what sort of frequency uh, is best for, for high impact tutoring? Yeah, I think the answer here is uh, basically two to four sessions a week. Um, and anywhere between 30 to 45 minutes would be fine. You have to consider the age of the, of the child receiving the tutoring um, when you're making that decision about the length of the session. Uh, pitfalls to watch out for when implementing tutoring in my district? Like what are common uh, pain points or, or areas where these programs fall flat? That's a great question. I would assume there's a lot of variability here. Um, yeah, I've seen a, a few uh, tutoring implementations in, in action. I would say like uh, it's extremely important to be like heavily prescriptive on the front end. Um, if it's if it's uh, presented as something that's a little bit too open ended, you start to sort of gravitate towards that on demand realm uh, where, you know, it's heavily like optional and any student can participate and take advantage. And, you know, there's some aspects of that in terms of it being organic that are inherently positive. But um, I would say one of the characteristics that's underrated as far as its importance is um, the importance of analyzing the data on the front end and then being highly intentional about who those priority student cohorts are who are going to participate in the tutoring program so that we can get them on those schedules and those weekly appointments with their tutor that are going to ultimately result in them becoming FEV tutor champions. Um, so that's like the one that really stands out to me. Um, we're at time here. There was a few good questions. Um, I think we should probably wrap, Aaron. Um, anything before, anything you want to end on before we wrap up here? Um, no, I think I would just like to say thank you to all the educators out there that are working hard for on behalf of our kids. I know that this is a difficult job, and I have uh, my utmost respect and appreciation for for the work that work that people are doing. So. I echo those sentiments 200%. And thank you all again for the work that you're doing and for spending some time with us today. Uh, look forward to seeing some of you on November 16th uh, when, we're, when we're back on with Hector County ISD. And um, yeah, thank you again. Hope, hopefully this was uh, beneficial in terms of exploring high impact tutoring. And you all have a great rest of your week. We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.